What's up? Welcome to Sweathead. I've got Becky Wang, who's CEO and founder of Crossbeat. And I got to tell you, if there's an apocalypse, I want to be standing next to Becky when it happens because I know she'll keep me safe and <laughs> get everyone away. She's like this machine, mental, intellectual machine. And uh, I really respect that. I had the fortune of working with her when I, when I first moved to America. And we've stayed in touch ever since. Welcome, Becky. Mark, thank you for such a warm greeting. Hi. Hey, I'd be terrible in, a, in an apocalypse. I'd be wanting to write poetry or something, I, and I would, I, I, would, I would morph into something in the radiation, the fallout. <laughs> uh, for, for those who, uh, who don't know Becky, I mean, she's had a very varied life, really interesting from Hollywood, screenwriting, making movies to the finance world and numbers world. She has a huge numbers brain and is also very creative and has also run data and analytics groups at companies such as Saatchi and Saatchi in New York and Droga5 in New York. And her and I worked together for a little bit of time. It was too short as far as career-wise, but we've, we work together now in life-wise. And we've talked a lot about how to get people who have studied and grown up doing data and analytics insight research work and trying to work out how to connect them into the rest of their agencies. It seems to be an eternal quandary. And Becky, you get a lot of people approaching you and asking you for help. What are some of the questions that they pose to you about their roles and how to be more effective in their roles? Often when insight strategists, research strategists, insight uh, analytics folks reach out, it always starts with actually just a general question around how did you evolve your career to where it is now, right? Like how is it that you can be known for both insights and creativity or data and strategy or even uh, consumer research and creative development. And I think what underlies that is sort of the existential pressures that come from agencies today who also don't know who they are mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. are really large companies that have applied a specialization model, right? Which is we already have existing creatives, we need to bolt on insights, or we need to bolt on data rather than thinking in a truly integrative way about it. And I think that true innovation, integration comes from, I think, people feeling integrated in their own process of owning both the insights piece and the creative piece, right? Or the data piece and the creative piece. So often the question is just, how did you make the leap? And I often say, I, don't, I didn't make the leap. I added to my practice of data because it was always being creative with it or being creative in addition or using it as a base of or a way to generate insights is integral to the process of generating an idea. Is it fair to say, because I, I think starting out when someone asks a career question, they expect a career answer. And increasingly, what I try to talk to people about is who do you identify as? Who are you? Because mm-hmm. first of all, if you're doing data work and in your heart you identify as a painter, you're setting yourself up for a few years of pain, <laughs> you know, and, and sure, yeah. college debt and earning money, et cetera. But I think that sense of self, which can shift to a degree over time, I think is a really important question not to put under the rug as you're trying to work out how to be more effective. Because usually you've got to reach into the thing, the person who you are, if you're a painter mm-hmm. and, you, and, you do, and you do data, can you do those things together? 
And if you're in, honestly, if you're in a company that says no to that, that's crazy in this century right now. They should say, yes, 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 give me more. What else have you got? Do you also do ballet oh, and ride yeah, horses? Absolutely. horses? Can you do all yeah. four things at once? And you also mentioned the existential pressure of agencies. And there's definitely, we're, we're a good decade, I think, at least into the existential turmoil mm-hmm. of agency world. And when you, again, when you're a bit new to a career, you're not always aware of the turmoil that is going on. Do the people who approach mm-hmm. you, to talk about their careers, are they aware of what's going on with this existential pressure on, on, on agencies, especially holding companies right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure that many of the wonderful people that approach me are thinking about it. I think what they are responding to is the feeling of it, right, which is uncertainty in leadership. And when uncertainty is in someone's life, then there's a natural association with risk. And when you feel like the choices you make are risky, you tend to, I think it's a natural human reaction to sort of clamp down and say, okay, but you do this thing, right? There's like a need for delineation and clarity because like there's a need to control because Mm -hmm. we're entering something that's uncontrollable. I think that when you're starting a career, it's natural to be like, hey, I'm going into a large organization. I just want to fit in. And I think that sort of fitting in often starts with title, not culture. It's like, well, if my role is a research strategist, then I want to do the best research I can. And I think that that's a absolutely fine thing to do, right? Because you're there, you're looking for community and stuff like that. But I think the care with which I think a lot of young people do want to do a good job, they have to apply that desire to do a good job in the own sort of cultivation of themselves and express that. You know, we have a lot of a lot of things that are at play, right? I think many creatives want space to be creative, which can be a solitary act, and then share it and expound upon it and build upon it. And, you know, the, the, this notion of assembly line creativity where it's like, okay, I'm going to take what you have and then, and then apply layer creativity isn't, it's not a very nurturing environment. I think that while maybe young, many young people don't say, oh, I know what's going on. There's like business pressure on my CEO and it's trickling down. Instead, it just feels like, why are they asking me to do report after report after report? Well, it's because they look at you as a distinct FTE that fits into their process of how they generate money in their business model. Yeah. Rather than saying a comp model that's based on, you know, we've created this output. Are you happy with it? And it took all of these creative people working together as a symbiotic team to come up with it. There's a lot of robotic reporting because as you say, it's, it's a revenue stream and, and nothing, not, not much pains me more than to meet someone who I know has a beautiful brain and they're doing this really robotic reporting. It's quite a frustrating thing to see. Uh, like is the idea of robotic reporting something that the people who seek you out for a little mentorship or a coffee, is, is that something that they find in their lives that they're aware of? Or is it something that you point out to them? And so for many of them, they're not like generating reports anymore. Most agencies now have reporting tools, but now they become software jockeys, which is I know how to push this button, that button, this other button, export it massage the data a little bit because of testing we've done or things that are totally legitimate, but the machine itself can't tell the difference. And they become practitioners of software and sometimes not analysts, or they become practitioners of not just practitioners of software, but 
in the interpretation, they are often like, I can only take it so far because I don't have the full context of the client problem that I'm dealing with. So I think robotic reporting is just this notion of having a, being output driven from a proof of industry standpoint. In order to show all the thinking that's been done in your part, you have to create a thing that looks reusable or familiar to say that you've done your piece of the task rather than saying, you know, a different model around that. So I think people come and say, I'm tired of putting out this familiar thing. And then it gets transformed into this 30 second spot, 10 second Instagram story, beautiful graphic. And I wasn't there as part of the process. There's a divorce that happens between what is the raw materials and what the, what the outcome is. But that, that divorce, I think that is in a bigger cultural way, a symptom of this existential pressure that is also rubbing up against the industrialization of thinking so that as humans, we kind of feel divorced from ourselves. We take on roles where we get to bring part of ourselves to work. If we're, if we're lucky, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully more yeah. than one part, but often it's not definitely not all of ourselves, whatever that even means. And if a self's real, etc. And then the people who do the thinking, they feel divorced from the other departments. So that people who spend a little bit more time in research data and analytics insight, they feel divorced from strategy. Strategists often feel divorced from the creative process. The creatives are often, they often feel divorced from the output or the production, because sometimes, yeah, there's a, a robot or a computer that's doing multivariate testing on their work. And at the same time, in some agencies, uh, it's not a diss, but some agencies are very either producer or account driven. And so the people I've just mentioned don't even get to meet the client at times. And there's just mm -hmm. a brief that kind of flies in and then someone gets the burger ready and someone gets the roll ready and the lettuce and the tomato, they spray the ketchup on and away it goes. There's feedback that comes in third hand and it's, it's a bit strange out there. Why is this going on, Becky? Because we know a lot of really good, smart people, and we know that they could contribute to their companies, their agencies, their, the world in bigger ways. What's going on? You know, it's such a big question, and I can it only is. hypothesize on pieces of it and would always, as always, value your, your point of view. It's, I, mean, I think one piece of it is that the business entity itself by having to charge up to three times the cost of what it takes to hire a team of creative folks ranging from analytics, strategy, creative, et cetera, because they have to support uh, margins on a fancy building, very expensive creative directors, because that's the way it's always been done. And they're supporting the way it's always been done because that's in some ways part of the culture, right? It's our it's our legacy that we've inherited. And we just haven't sorted that all out yet. Many clients are going to small shops like ours or, or going to design studios and not advertising groups or going to collectives, right? Rather than traditional hierarchically structured uh, organizations to get their briefs met. There's an increase in supply of talent in one of my previous companies, it was about harnessing that senior talent that has left the agency structure to freelance or start, start up their own small shops. So it increases supply and that the demand is, is shifting and legacy organizations struggle. I mean, I think the other thing too is now that I don't want to say creativity is measurable, but outputs are more measurable. 
You know, I'm a, I, I love measurement because it's such a big piece of science. And I think science is the ultimate creative act, right? Combines strategy, creativity, and executional operation all in one. But I think it's the over application sometimes of measurement. We think, well, if I have to measure the outcome, I'm going to measure every joint within the process that gets yeah. to the outcome. And mm. we lose a space for alchemy. What do you think? Obviously, these things happen in a culture, and what we're talking about is largely our experience of America. But it, it, and America has exported its business processes and culture around the world. Uh, America is very individualistic, and you look at the football teams, the basketball teams, the hockey teams, middle management, aka the coach. They're very involved, unlike many other sports where there's a coach that might set a philosophy, pick the team, make some substitutes. They might do some sideline coaching, but they're not interrupting the entire game for an ad break to tell the players how to play like players who are some of the best in the world they're not telling them <laughs> how to do things differently and i think a lot of those things come together in a country that is amazing at business and and factories and people have just tried to replicate this hierarchical highly individualized highly siloed factory-like environment to creativity and creative work mm -hmm. because they're doing that in the pursuit of effectiveness and efficiency yeah. And it's a very pragmatic culture in America in amazing ways. But, you know, the number of times I've had conversations with people in like large agencies about how to, how to get, a, how, where do you find planners and data and analytics people that, that can do the kind of work we want to do? And often there's an implication that the type of people that we needed to find or bring in had to be really predictable and check a lot of boxes as opposed to the mm -hmm. old folklore of planning which is like you get a geographer a teacher a psychologist you know some you get people from different backgrounds and let them into the world to see how they explore it as opposed to this replica robot army of quasi thinkers i'm ranting but you also you mentioned uncertainty in leadership uh here's how i mm -hmm. sometimes hear uncertainty in leadership when I, I go into places we've lost a lot of clients the work's not great we don't really know what work we want to do. We pitch on everything. We're not really sure what we stand for as an agency. When people are talking to you about their agency environments and they're talking about leadership, how does uncertainty raise its head? I think, it, you know, the one thing I loved and hated about my agency experience was how nobody from leadership actually spoke to us, but that it moved through the hierarchy, right, where your head of strategy would speak to you or the head of your department would speak to you, right? And it was like, who is in the know rather than a continual flow of conversation both ways. People would be let go and there wouldn't be a conversation after it. Now, I understand it, that may seem like a very, gosh, you know, with a 30% a month churn rate, that's like a lot of conversation to be having. But maybe that's right. Like we are in a creative people oriented and we're celebrating what, is, what it means to be human, right? Which is creativity. That's, that's part of what we believe is our unique value proposition. And yet the infrastructure and the way we treat this resource of people is not good for people. We forget that in the agency space. So from an uncertainty in leadership, I think that in this time and in a category that's being disrupted by technology, large companies that are, are focused on scale, and I'm talking about Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, they're all focused on scale. And I think 
many leaders feel like, wait, is that what I'm competing with? I'm, I'm competing with scale. I'm competing with not only generating uh, a set of ideas that will really touch the consumer, but how do I actually reach all those people too? And I think it's important to manage as, as a leader, it's important to manage sort of the anxiety that comes from uncertainty, but understanding uncertainty is a constant. It's just a, it's a constant. And I think that many leaders in agency setting are not taking care of their most, you know, precious resource, which is people. And people need to be mentored, coached, comforted, led, included. Yeah, risk and uncertainty is, I think, of a, a standard in business now because it's so easy to enter almost every single category now. Well, there's two thoughts that popped up as you were talking. I, I think, and I, I think I see this in my younger self now clearer, and maybe because of that, I projected onto other people who think for a living. But I think when someone's un- uncertain about themselves, they will see uncertainty in other people and they will see uncertainty yes. in their agencies, right? And accept it because they're not certain. Because if they were certain, they wouldn't accept it, right? So there's a little riddle there. And then the second one, I think, at a cultural level is something that's been on my mind. And I don't know whether this is, this is probably absolutely not novel. But I do think that we, we treat companies as people, at least in a, a legal way. But we've started to treat companies better than people. And to a large degree, someone who has a C-level position, a lot of people I've spoken to, they're, they're like, I have to serve the business. I have to make the best decision for the business. But the business is the people. Uh, they hope it's mm-hmm. not, right? They hope it's not because if they want to sell it, the business can't be dependent on specific people, which makes agencies one of the harder things to sell, at least in the future, now in, in the future. But I think those, those two ideas around people who are uncertain about themselves will see uncertainty in others and companies are people, mm-hmm. but we treat companies better than people. I think those two things are in there as well. I would also say that to create a company that is able to handle both growth and take care of their people, I think takes time. So now these days, I become actually very skeptical of partner companies who have gone from, you know, zero to 10 million in five years. Not to Mm -hmm. say that I do not myself wish for that too, but we see that as like a marker of success or we want to be there. And like the question to me is always what happens when they can't sustain beyond that zero to 10 in five years, what got them there and is the culture underneath it taking care of people part of it? I think it takes time to build that infrastructure and technology doesn't always speed it up. I read a really interesting article recently how digital transformation has traditionally been used as a way to reduce cost and often the most expensive thing in an organization is people. So there is this unconscious false equivalency that digital transformation is just about reducing cost. The use of technology in your manufacturing, marketing, sales process, the use of technology is often then looked at as decreasing cost and making things more efficient rather than making things more productive, which means not about cutting costs, i.e. cutting people, but making your people more effective. And that's like a subtle but pretty important nuance. And that's often like the first thing that I talk about with my clients is that distinction. I'm not going to look to save you money. I'm going to look to make your teams produce more and better. Is that a surprise to them that you would lead with a thought like that? Sometimes, yes. Although we've been in the market long enough that much of our business is word of mouth or it's on the strength of you know, the partners in the, in the business. So most of us come with a pretty humanistic bent. I think it also makes people feel better too. It's not about mm. 
cutting jobs. It's about yeah, making more people more productive. Uh, just just a couple more questions on the people that you mentor, coach, have coffees with. Uh, for those of them in a data and analytics or a similar role in an agency or a company, which where they're in a separate department to strategists, how can strategists work better with them? Yeah, I think it's about mentorship, like nurture and mentor everyone, your boss, someone in a perceived lower, quote unquote, they're never lower, but in another department. And that to me is about sharing knowledge and recognizing the thing that you're looking to be recognized for, recognizing it in other people. So if you're looking to be more creative, nurture that in another person or recognize in another person. Yeah, that's, that's what I say. But yeah, make the effort to go create a social interaction with them. So you know that they're just not the person who's generating a report or sending you, you know, a list of insights or the person who's managing your research and all your qual, because often the, the best bits of your strategy are going to be coming from these nascent data points. And you want to have the social conversation around what's in the official document to, I think, really ignite your mind, right? Yeah. Everyone's a yeah. collaborator. Uh, I know that when I was running strategy teams, if, if data research, et cetera, were in a separate group, I was always looking to see the brains in that group. And a big part of the challenge was to snap them out of their own roboticism so that if they're stuck on some reporting treadmill, even if they're a software jockey and they're in a room presenting, I would, I would just ask them either in that room, maybe not in front of people, maybe in front of people, hey, let's just pause on this report that you've got. What, what was the most unusual thing that you found? Is, is there something in here that really surprised you? And I don't know what the numbers would be on that percentage wise. Because a lot of people are interested in having a robotic life. Obviously, the people who search you out are not. But every now and then, someone's like, oh, oh, hang on. There's a little glitch in the system. And like, oh, yeah, I found this really weird thing about, you know, there's this type of dog that likes to drink champagne and have bubble baths at 8 p.m. on Thursday while being on Twitter. And I'm like, oh, my God. What? <laughs> but that kind of that kind of thing didn't fit the structure of the report. And yeah. I tell you what, I tell you what, if I get when I used to get answers like that, I'm very quick to be like, Oh God, how can we get this person into a broader role? Yeah. Or even if, they, even if they maintain the title or and the department, but how do we get them thinking? That's right. Uh, there's a book out actually came out a few years ago uh, by Daniel Pink, right? Called mm -hmm. the a whole new mind, why right brainers will rule the future. And I think that's an, it's an interesting position. I would just argue that, <laughs> I'm going to argue with Daniel Pink, despite yeah. the fact that he's a best-selling best -selling author. Um, and I understand the framework that he's coming from, right? But the main crux of his argument is that now that uh, repeatable task, repeatable repetitive tasks can now be automated with AI and machine learning, we're really going to start to see a shift in those who can think holistically, creatively with a design thinking perspective. And I think that it's important to be able to, if not do both, have an understanding of both left yeah. and right brain. Um, yeah. Otherwise, you can't go along the whole process, which I think is the ultimate hallmark of, of a creative mind. Totally, totally. And the people who are, whether or not the left brain, right brain construct stays alive for much longer, I'm not sure. I actually need to read up on, refresh my memory on whether people are attacking that as a construct as well. But the left brain being more logical and rational, those people are still going to be running the companies because that's what they're good at. <laughs> and the right brain's off in the clouds half the time. If we're going to use the binary, we, we might as well use the binary. So I think the people who have creative skills and 
traits and who love that kind of work, the world is going to need them. But many of them will be serving a company that is left brain <laughs> and people running it will be uh, yeah. left brain as well. Does he, I haven't read the book, but does he, does he talk about that as, uh, at all? The title of the book is about the yeah. right brain people kind of ruling everything, right? But that's just, I don't, has there ever been an, an era in history where that's been the case? Not that that has to predict the future. I doubt it. Yeah. I think it'll take a, I mean, we have so many, you know, mechanisms from our education system to uh, how we write performance evaluations, right? That keep the left brainer in power, right? Mm. So I think it's a good sentiment, but we'd have to change a lot of structures on how we operate our businesses. And I think that there are many companies that are up for it. But part of it is, I think the first thing to shake is the scale mindset. That growth is uh, horizontal, that that growth is like piling up person after person after person. Um, and instead, growth can be more functional, a network of small companies that focus on different things, but all work together has a holistic sum. And, it, and, and you're measured by more than just the revenue you generate, but actually by the number of jobs you create. Right. So these are just like different ways to think about success and what are the kinds of companies you want to work for. And I mean, I think for a lot of the young people that I had the pleasure of speaking with, they're they're just like, yeah, but I just want the experience or I want the, the name on my resume so that I can get another the next job or I could start my own company. And I was like, well, sometimes you need to start at the end and work backwards. So if you're telling me you want to start a company, it's a very different path than wanting to work at a really progressive company or, or wanting to be, you know, a senior manager over at Facebook or Google. Those are all valid career paths, right? But, and, and you can choose to go through all three, I think. May you be blessed with such a long life. But I think that the main thing is to not just think about a one size fits all, that you have to be a successful at Droger, you have to be successful at Saatchi, or you have to be successful at Huge or you know, many other agencies where, you know, people are coming from. What sorts of challenges do freelance data and analytics people face and are any of their challenges unique to them and not something that another type of strategist or copywriter or art director would face in freelancing? I think the challenge I hear most often is that they're often asked to come in and be the data person <laughs> when the challenge is they don't, maybe they don't have the right software system to generate the kind of reports that they want. Or uh, they're like, please generate some insights from our data set. And then all they can say is actually none of this is fused together and there's no way to bring all the pieces together, right? I think they're often asked to come in and solve a technical challenge, right? Like a plumbing problem with data. And in the research realm, I think, you know, research and insights is great. I think to be a specialist in that, a specialist in a freelancer in that is super fun. But I think that that often gets conflated with give me insights and the process of running research qual and quant is like a different brain than the time, or not a different brain. It takes time to do that and give yourself time to actually let the creative process of insight generation happen. So 
I think what's unique about anybody with data in their day-to-day is having to have enough time to do, I think, some of the deeper getting to know the data set and then extrapolating or creating amongst the data set. And it's not to say that strategists don't have that problem, but I think what I've noticed is when you're asked to create primary data sets or generate from primary data sets, there's not often not enough time because the client is asking for an outcome that they understand. Okay. And then what about for people who move from employee to freelance or to setting up their own companies and for the first time in their lives, possibly having to work out how to sell themselves where their livelihoods are really dependent on their ability to sell themselves. How do you coach people I'm not selling you as a coach, but how, how, how do you, how would you coach, coach someone into being able to sell themselves without feeling icky about it? Yeah, of course. That's a great question. Um, first of all, uh, I have a coach. I think it's important, um, especially if you're working by yourself, it's a necessity, um, not a luxury for me. So I build it into my business model and a coach is a way to not simply help you stretch and grow as a, as a self-organizing or eventual boss of other people, but they're also there to reflect back to you with zero conditions, how awesome you are. And I think Mm. in freelance and in running your own business, that is critical. You need a place where you can be praised for your curiosity and your, you know, your, your relentless intellectual or creative pursuit, or just like who you are, because you are brave. You're just learning all the skills to support that, that bravery. That said, I would say that the one thing I learned this year is that when you have a really robust content strategy, which honestly, Mark, I learned from you, right, which is write your thoughts down and put them in places where people can and want to read your thoughts is a great way to create demand for your work. I myself have a book out, but I didn't do a great job sort of updating it or continuing the dialogue from this really, really big piece of work that I put out there. And I think that's like a critical thing that everyone should do. And it's the evolution of your thinking as as much a a selling point of your business because they are looking to you from some level of expertise. So one, I look at writing and content creation as demand gen in sales. And I think that the power of personal connection, which is what I think is traditionally associated with sales, I think it's more important when you meet people, whether it's potential collaborators or potential clients, is make that personal connection. And it doesn't always happen in a single moment. In fact, for many of my clients, I might meet them at a party and and have a lovely conversation and say, oh my God, thank you so much for the time. Um, I'd love to follow up with coffee. And sometimes they can and sometimes they can't. And often I'll see them again at another function and that person will say, you know what? We never followed up on that coffee. So I think when you think about quote unquote sales, it's not about converting someone in in that first moment and pushing them down a funnel. It's making a personal connection and allowing that connection to grow organically. New York is, even though it might feel big, it's actually pretty small. If you're diligent about going to Digital Dumbo or meetups or IAB or ANA gatherings or ad age events or ad week events, South by Southwest, there's so many different places, some obviously more expensive than others, but certainly plenty of mixers that are available go to them. 
What about for people who maybe don't have the social skills or who are a bit introverted or who, like me, I get anxious in crowds and that's not an unusual thing, but I, I've been to enough concerts and found myself just getting anxious and I've been to enough events where I'm quite quick to either not want to be in the room or to be the back of the room or the front of the room. I have to really say to myself, like I was over at at Google in London for an event a few weeks ago and I was like, okay, hang on, I'm here for a brief period of time. I should try to talk to people and I often will get stuck. I could totally stand in a conversation for two hours (laughs) because maybe it's a great conversation, but it's more because I'm nervous about moving around the room. How would you coach someone you know, first of all, do they really have to move around the room and network or could, could they take more of an introvert's strategy, which is to try to create some useful stuff that people see and then they approach you? Absolutely. I think you, you know, everyone says, uh, not everyone, there is a belief sometimes out there that you need to improve on your weaknesses, whereas studies have shown that if you focus on your strengths, you do far better. Like I said, what I learned from you is your style, right? Like you actually taught me that creating content, which can be a solitary event, right? It's, it's, it's time and space for you to put down your thoughts and words is absolutely effective way to invite people to seek you out. And if that is your strength, create and focus upon from that point of view. Absolutely. There are some networking events I go to where I will stand in the corner and talk to someone for two hours and just feel like, you know what? I just, I built a relationship. I didn't feel the need to go deeper. I I do think it's important to occasionally go out there. It's not about forcing yourself to be like the most extroverted person in the world. I don't think that's what it's about. I do think it's important to try and try to the best. It's about stretching, which I think is should be part and parcel to every every creative process anyway, because occasionally you might meet another person who is equally introverted and a beautiful collaboration can happen. I think the important thing is is not to set the expectations of an outcome, but have it just be another learning experience. I think you want to know that people exist in the flesh, right? And even if for you, it's creating demand gen through what you've written and put out in the world, and then meeting for coffee, to me is also part of networking. If that person says, oh my God, this is so great. Hey, I'm headed to this thing. Do you want to come? Well, you already have someone built in there. And that person who may be a little more extroverted than you or just equally dreading it, you might both go there and the dynamic of having you both there can help both of you just to meet one person. I think the important thing is to remove measurement from it. I think when you think of sales, you can also think of the things that lead to sales, which is demand gen. Content that helps generate demand for you is equally good. And I feel like that's the thing that I've learned to be as effective because it improves targeting, right? I can talk to so many people at a, at a, at a event and I will be like, I'm not sure anything. I, I enjoyed myself during the evening, but I may not have actually generated a connection that would eventually lead to new business. So I think it's important to play to your strengths. I agree. And yet, I don't know what the what people are getting told as teenagers or in the early parts of their careers now, but it often is about improving your weaknesses as opposed to really going crazy with the strengths. And I think there's so many people in the world and people have so little time for 
all of it because that's impossible mathematically that being really good at a thing or two and then doing it in an, a way that's really true to you and in a maybe a loud or crazy unusual way like people will see that and it will it, it will resonate with the people it needs to resonate with and it will go over the heads of the people that aren't your people anyway and you don't even have to make a decision about it but all of a sudden you know i found this over the past few years that your life does start to fill with people who have the same vibe and it's kind of cool and i also know that if I'm feeling a bit stuck, the best thing I can do is to commit to some kind of talk or publishing something. And just that act of movement, great for my mental health and things always happen. And they're just these amazing surprises. And yes, that is survivor's bias, but I also have to believe that bias so that I keep going. I think you're, I think you're spot on. And I also think about our friendship too, right? Like I have so many people who are even more extroverted than I am, but the thing that we have in common is our love of ideas or a love of a really bad TV show. I'm not going to tell you any right now because I don't want to be judged. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes putting yourself in, uh, it is the same vibe and vibe vibe might not be the external packaging of introversion, extroversion, right? And I think especially when you're younger, it's, it's important to experiment with that. So I don't think I'm disagreeing with you. I'm just putting a little flourish on that. What's a last question? What's a way that you've tried to stretch yourself in the past year or two? I have been working on stretching myself through recognizing visual uh, techniques. So I start things the way I always start them, which is buy a lot of books and only read half of them. Mm. And uh, I have this book on how graphic design appears across all these different cultural places from movies to art to pop art to advertising. And one thing I'd love to do a little more is not just read about it and know about it and be able to talk about it, which are things that I'm very good at, but to actually learn how to collage images together to then actually be able to design graphically. Uh, Do I think I'll ever be a graphic designer? I don't think so. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it's a different part of my brain and to be able to communicate visually allows me to also have a conversation with all the creative directors and, and designers that we hire or freelance with or work with and collaborate with here at Crossbeat. Awesome. And I just see it as like a better way to like have a better conversation. I love it. I love it. I look look forward to seeing some of your visuals next time we Drawing. catch up. Hey, what, what's the, <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, oh, what if I get the word wrong? Which is, I, 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 I interview people and I've interviewed thousands of people and at all times, the question, what if I get the word wrong is just nagging at me and then I stumble. <laughs> I always stumble. Where, where can people find your book? What is it called? And then where are you most active on the internet if people want to reach out to you? The name of my book is Creativity and Data Marketing, a Primer in Data Innovation. came out in February of 2017. I am launching my remixed, rebooted.io blog, which you should be seeing in January 2019, which is extending that conversation and the conversation on design and innovation. That was the URL? Yeah. Say, what was the URL? Remixed, yeah remixed rebooted.io okay cool and that will likely be the place i'm most active on the internet for now but if there's anything i'm doing on the internet it's often going to be on instagram and the blog and the blog will be obviously available through medium 
Well, may you keep stretching and magnifying yourself. I look forward to that website, Becky Wang. It's going to be exciting. I am too. Thank you, Mark. I learned it from right. watching you. Yeah, you I'm later. just starting. I'm a beginner. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Peace.